Romans chapter 8, verse 6 through 13. The mind, governed by the flesh, is death. But the mind, governed by the spirit, is life and peace. The mind, governed by the flesh, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, Brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. The word of the Lord. In the Gospel of John, the very first words out of Jesus' mouth are a question. He says, what do you want? If you met Jesus and he asked you this question, how would you answer? When was the last time anybody ever asked you this question? Heck, has anybody ever asked you this question? And I don't mean in terms of just like, what do you want for dinner, or what do you want for your birthday, but what do you really want? This is not as easy a question to answer as we might assume. In fact, for many of us, it's probably easier to say the things in our lives that we don't want than what we do want. We would say, well, I'm not sure what I want, but I know what I don't want. I don't want this trouble or this burden or this anxiety. I don't want this depression, this loneliness, this self-hatred, shame, trauma, addiction, self-harming behavior, whatever it might be. I know what I don't want. Sometimes it's way easier to say what we don't want than what we do want. And the reason for that is because... um, even just saying that points to the reality that um, we wouldn't even know that much if we didn't know at some level that all of that painful stuff is not the way it's supposed to be and that we were created for something more, even if we're not sure what it is. So for instance, have you ever heard of phantom pain? There was a doctor, the term comes from a, a doctor named Silas Mitchell. He's considered the father of modern neurology. And uh, phantom pain means that if you got an amputation, like an arm or a leg, phantom pain is the pain that you feel even though that limb is no longer there. 
So after the Civil War, Silas Mitchell was um, working with soldiers who'd had amputations, and he said this about them. He said, thousands of spirit limbs were haunting as many good soldiers every now and then tormenting them. Spirit limbs were haunting and tormenting people. They used to have a limb. They no longer have that limb, but they still feel pain where the limb used to be. The pain was pointing them to something they were made for. Friends, here's the question. What if our pain, all of the pain of the stuff in our life that we don't want, what if our pain is pointing us to something we were made for? I want to propose to us that one of the reasons it's so difficult for us to to name our desires and to say, this is what I want, is because doing that would mean feeling the pain of all of the desires we have, feeling the pain of the absence of those desires. That leaning into our desires means feeling the pain of the absence of those things. These are spirit limbs that are haunting and tormenting us. And so, here's the question. What if the ultimate fulfillment of those desires means not getting rid of the pain, not doing an end run around the pain, but plunging ourselves right into the pain and through it finding the deepest desires of our heart? Doing that would be a huge risk if we're wrong, but would we be willing for just a few minutes this morning to ponder the possibility of what it would feel like to take a risk like that? We're working our way through Romans chapters 5 through 8, and um, right now we're um, taking several weeks to go through Romans chapter 8 because that chapter is so dense and so rich. This morning we're just looking at verses 6 through 13, which engage this question, what if our pain is pointing us to something we were made for? And this morning we're going to just see three things. Paul shows us a vision for you. He shows us how we should respond to that vision. And lastly, what that response looks like. Okay, so there's a vision, a response, and what that response looks like. Okay, first, he shows us a vision for you. And let's just begin with a little recap from last week. If you were with us, you remember we, um, we were looking at verses 6 through 9, and especially verse 6, which says, The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Now, if you were with us last week, you remember we did a lot of work to understand what Paul means by this, and we could paraphrase it like this. Orienting our whole being around a picture of the good life that pursues human-centered goals by means of human power is death, but orienting our whole being around a picture of the good life that pursues God-centered goals by means of divine power is life and peace. Now, I promised you last week that as we continue through Romans 8, that we were going to see more about what are God's goals for our life and for this world. And one of the main things we saw last week is that it begins in verse 9. Paul says, you, however, he's talking to Christians, you are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. We saw last week that one of the first things God does when you become a Christian is he comes in his Holy Spirit and he dwells in you. He lives in you. That's one of God's goals for your life is to dwell in you. Now, what difference does that make in your life? Well, look at what he says next. 
If Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Now, when Paul says, even though your body is subject to death, here's what he means. Paul is, he's really tapping into the main storyline of the whole Bible. That God's original vision for a creation was that this world would be a place of beauty, perfection, glory, and wholeness, but it's not. So, for instance, have you ever wondered why it is that, um, that we're so bothered by the reality that this world is the way it is? In other words, if there is no God and this world is all there is, then by definition, this world is already exactly the way it's supposed to be. And yet, if that's the case, why is it that things like racism or genocide or oppression, why do we call those things evil or wrong or unjust? Why do those things bother us so much? I mean, if justice is a limb that never existed, why do we feel the pain of its absence? The answer is because God did create this world to be more and for us to be more. But now everything is falling apart. So because human beings, we oriented our whole being around a picture of the good life that pursues human-centered goals by means of human power. As a result, everything in this world is falling apart, but God's vision is to put it all back together again and renew all of creation, to renew the whole cosmos, to renew the whole world. And we're going to see a lot more about what that means in a few weeks when we get to verse 18. But here's the amazing thing for this morning. That vision begins with you and with me. God's new creation renewal project begins with human beings. That's why Paul says, if Christ is in you, even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. The Spirit gives life. That means the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you, and He starts getting to work in your life right now. It means God has a vision for you. What is that vision? Well, He shows us in the next verse. He says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. He will give life to your mortal bodies. Paul is talking about resurrection. That's new creation. The same thing that happened to Jesus happens to you. That means that resurrection, by the way, does not mean floating away to some disembodied spiritual existence. Resurrection, new creation, means embodied renewal. It means new creation, that just as the old creation is falling apart, God's vision is to bring about a new creation, a new embodied creation. And that vision begins with human beings. In other words, The power of the Holy Spirit that one day is going to renew the whole cosmos, when you become a Christian, that power comes into life and begins working in your life right now. This is a vision for you. But here's the question, whose vision? We're in church right now, so it's like, well, duh, the obvious answer is God's vision. But here's the thing, you're going to walk out of church, or you're going to walk out of your home this week, and you're going to go out into a world that never asks that question, whose vision? It never asks that question because we've already assumed a very different answer. So, for instance, there was a video this week um, in the New York Times that's all about the soaring mental health crisis among young people in America. I mean, it's, it's been declared a national emergency. 
So in the video, they interview young people, like this young woman who was identified by her initial C, and she said, I was suicidal for years, and that was just normal. It was just constant pain, and I would do anything for it to stop. Or they interviewed a young man named Justin who said, everybody's miserable, and everybody's more miserable when they think about uh, that everybody is having a great time. <laughs> I, by the way, love the honesty of these young people who were so vulnerable to share these things with the video. But here's the thing. This video highlights the reality that there are major portions of our society that are in massive crisis. And yet, one of the things I found most fascinating about the video is the way they frame the whole story. Here's what I mean. The title of the video was Too Much. It's hard to see, but it says the science behind the teen mental health crisis. Now, I, I really was impressed with the video. I mean, they, it is so helpful. They have a lot of data. And one of the things I especially appreciated was that they recognized that human beings are complex beings and therefore that the causes for mental health crises in our society are complex causes. Um, but at the end of the video, one of the things they do is they, um, they show that if people get the right kinds of support and help, that they can really have happy, meaningful, and joyful lives. But the assumption of the video is that if we can get the scientific conditions of our life just right, in other words, proper nutrition, get enough sleep, social connection, getting outside, things like that, that if we can get the scientific conditions right, then we can be set free to pursue our own vision for our life. The assumption of the video is that true human flourishing means discovering and expressing your vision for your life. That, that there um, is no universal um, predetermined vision for what humans are supposed to be and to do that, that, that the most important thing is for you to discover your own vision, express your own vision for the world to see, because that's freedom. Friends, here's the question. What if this so-called freedom is actually burdening us even more? The assumption of the video is that, and it really is an assumption, it's not a scientific fact, the assumption is that if we can just be set free to pursue our own vision for our life, that that's the way to true um, happiness and, free and, and meaning. It's an assumption. We're not asking the question, what if that assumption is one of the main things that, that is making us so miserable in the first place? What if this so-called freedom is actually burdening us? What if discovering your own vision for life, constructing your own vision for life, and then expressing that vision for all the world around you to see, what if that's actually exhausting us, burdening us, and putting us in even deeper bondage? Friends, the gospel presents us a very different vision of what, um, of what human flourishing looks like. It's not our vision for our lives. That's what got us into this mess in the first place. It's God's vision. Paul is saying that, that God is what we're made for, that God, he is the spirit limb that all of our pain is pointing to, and that leads to our next point. We've just seen a vision for you, but next Paul shows us uh, how we should respond to that vision. Because here's the thing, um, when we get into this, we realize what Paul is saying, that, um, that when we talk about this vision, how do we respond to this? What do we do with this? 
Because some of us might say, well, this all sounds great, but what do we actually do with this vision? It sounds interesting. It sounds maybe even desirable, but what do I actually do with this? Well, let me offer you just um, a couple of uh, uh, preliminaries for what we do with this. And one of them is this. First, this does not mean that we just sit around until we die, and then when we die, that's finally when, you know, God effects his vision for our life. Paul tells us in, in verse 9 that the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of us. That means that God gets to work in our lives right away when you become a Christian. The second thing is this. It doesn't mean that we just lay back passively and let God do all the work in our life as if we have nothing to contribute to the project. Because remember, God gets to work in your life. He comes and dwells in you through his Holy Spirit. But we said the mind of the Spirit means that we are now orienting our whole being around a picture of the good life that pursues God-centered goals by means of divine power. But there's still, we're still pursuing that goal along with God. That means that we're called to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in this goal. So first, it means it begins right now. Second, it means that we actually have a part to play in this. But what does this look like to respond to this vision? I mean, the answer really is the whole Christian life, which is the whole Bible shows us that. But Paul is showing us very specifically in this passage one specific response that's especially tied to this question of what if our pain is pointing us to something that we were made for? He shows us a very important component uh, for our response in this passage. So notice what he says. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. So how do we respond to this vision? He says we have an obligation to respond, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. In other words, it's not to pursue our own vision for our life. Rather, he says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now, when Paul says, put to death the misdeeds of the body, it's really easy for us to read this and think that Paul is saying that the body is bad. That to hear him saying that, that, that he doesn't like the body, that we should punish the body, and that, that if we stop doing bad things with our bad bodies, then God will love us and take us to heaven when we die. That is not what Paul is saying, and it's understandable what, why many people would believe that, because a lot of churches kind of act like that's what Paul is saying. That is a gross distortion of what Paul is saying here. What he's really saying here when he talks about dealing with our bodies is like he's going back to what he said in Romans chapter 6. If you were with us, you might remember he said that we should present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. That word members is another way of talking about our embodied existence in this world. Members means our embodied existence in this world. And that means that whatever you set your mind on, we were talking about this last week. Remember our mind, it doesn't just mean our conscious thinking. It also means our feelings, our emotions, our desires, that all of that is working together and expressing itself in this world through our embodied existence in this world, through our members. So if you were with us earlier in the series, remember um, we spent several weeks talking about the difference between stories and scripts. A script tells you how to act. A script tells you, here's what you do. Here's what you say. Your script is your embodied existence in this world. But every script presupposes a story. So for instance, if the story is a romantic comedy, 
then people act a certain way because that's a certain kind of story. But if the story is a superhero movie, then people act very differently because that's a very different kind of story. Can you imagine T'Challa showing up and giving Hugh Grant love advice about Julia Roberts? No. Those are two different kinds of stories. Here's the question. What kind of story are you living in? Our embodied existence in this world, that's our script. And here's the thing. Every script, the script you live depends on the story you're in. Your embodied existence in this world, the script you live, it depends on the story you're in. So what kind of story are you in? When Paul talks about the realm of the flesh or the realm of the spirit, those are two stories, competing stories. In, in our culture, the, the story of our culture says that you should pursue your own vision for your life in this world. The story of the gospel says, no, you should pr- pursue God's vision for your life and for this world. And so understanding all of that means that we can come back to what Paul is saying in this passage when he says, put to death the misdeeds of the body, or in Romans 6 when he says, present your members to God, we realize these are just different ways of saying, align your script with the story of new creation. Align your script, your embodied existence in this world, align that with the story of new creation. Because here's the thing, um, yes, this means changing what we do with our bodies. It means changing the way we live, but now we see that it's, this is not a body-hating project, it's a life-shaping project. So, Let's go back to Romans 6 again, because Paul is following up on what he said there. Remember we talked about getting a rule of life. A rule of, what is that? In the ancient world, rule was a word that simply meant a trellis. So a trellis is a structure that gets a grapevine up off of the ground so that it can grow and flourish. That's all it is. And understand, a trellis does not cause life or growth or transformation. It simply facilitates it. In other words, a rule of life, a trellis of life, is this. It's a set of embodied habits that facilitate spiritual transformation, spiritual formation. In other words, it's not us effecting transformation in our lives. It's a way of presenting our lives, lifting up our lives, lifting up our members to God so that God can transform us. That's what spiritual disciplines are. That's what a rule of life is. It's a set of habits, embodied habits, that facilitate spiritual formation. And here's the thing, especially if you look at that word rule of life and you think, wow, that sounds really rigid. That sounds really legalistic, like I got to obey all these rules. Number one, it doesn't say rules of life. It says rule of life. It's a trellis. It's a structure. But here's the thing. Whether you're exploring spirituality or whether you've been a Christian for years, you already have a rule of life. Because human beings are creatures of habit, and human beings are spiritual beings. That means that you already have habits that are already shaping you spiritually. They're already forming you spiritually. You already have a rule of life. Paul is simply saying, be intentional about it. Make sure that your script, your embodied existence in this world actually matches the story that you're in, that you get a set of embodied habits that facilitate spiritual formation in the new creation image of Christ. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, great, this this sounds better. Can you be a little bit more specific about what this actually looks like? 
I'm really glad you asked that question because that leads to our next, our last point, actually. We've seen a vision for you. God's vision for you is a new creation. It's an embodied renewal. Second, how should we respond to that? It means we should get a set of habits that facilitate spiritual formation in the new creation image of Christ. Third, what does that look like? Well, it looks like the whole Christian life, but we're just going to talk about one habit, one spiritual discipline this morning, because that's the one Paul mentions in this passage, and that's the one that helps us as we come back to the question we began with. What if our pain is pointing us to something that we were made for? Well, Paul says in verse 13, how do we engage this question? Look at what he says. If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. The classic term for this is mortification of sin. And mortification is just a really old way of talking about putting something to death. He's saying that we're putting sin to death. We're we're putting to death the sin that's in our lives. That's what this means. So here's the thing. What does this look like? Well, the most basic simple answer is it means saying no to sin and yes to God. Cool? We can pray and go home? (laughs) Let's do a little bit more deep digging, shall we? Yes, it means saying no to sin and yes to God, but let's let's go a little deeper. I want to use the acronym GRIP, G-R-I-P. And GRIP, by the way, helps us remember that what we're doing in spiritual formation is we're presenting ourselves to God, presenting our bodies to God, not as an act of, of transforming ourselves, but as as a way of of placing ourselves in a position where God can actually transform us. We have a part to play, but we're presenting ourselves to God and reminding ourselves that when we do that, we are actually in His grip, okay? So first, G stands for grieve your losses. And you're like, how does that relate to mortifying sin? Let's go through it. The first thing is grieving your losses. We were talking about this last week, that every single one of us, you have tombs, in your life. You have places in your life of grief and pain and loss and shame and trauma. And grieving your losses means actually naming those things and then letting Jesus into those places so that he can get to work in those places. It's very difficult for us to do that. Most of us, um, by the way, almost all sin, if not all of the sin in our life, is the result of our reluctance and our resistance to actually naming our losses and grieving them. Because what we do is we just clamp that stone down on the tomb. We want to keep all the stink inside. But what happens is that the stink eventually leaks out of the tomb and creates sinful wreckage in our own lives and in the lives of the people around us. So one of the very first things we have to do is grieve our losses. Secondly, R means renounce the lies. Because one of the results of living Um, and experiencing the grief, pain, and loss of living in a fallen world is that all kinds of lies get woven into your stories. Lies about who you are, about your worth and value as a human being created in the image of God. Lies about this world that say ultimate happiness means getting control over the conditions of your life. Lies especially about God Lies that say God doesn't really care about you and that if you really want to be happy, it means you're going to have to pursue your own vision for your life. 
In order to to really deal with the sin in our life and put it to death, we have to grieve our losses. We have to renounce those lies. But thirdly, when we do that, it means I means identifying your idols. In other words, when you're grieving your losses and renouncing the lies, that means next asking the question, hey, what is it that I say if I could just get this in my life, then I would be happy, then I would be joyful, then I would be free. Those things are idols, and whenever the Bible talks about idols, whatever, what it's talking about is really, really good things that we turn into substitutes for God. And it, the way this begins is with identifying the surface idols in our life. That would be things maybe like money or possessions. It might be things like sexual fantasy or fulfillment. It might be things like your achievements or career success, or your sacrificial service on behalf of others. But those things are surface idols. They're on the surface of our lives. But when we identify those things, the next is to identify what are the root idols underneath those surface idols. Because the things like money, or sex, or achievements, or service, all of that is pointing to something deeper down in our lives that we're really chasing after. Things like approval, power, control, comfort, security. What are you chasing? What are you worshiping? Friends, if we're grieving our losses and renouncing the lies, the next step is identifying the idols. But once we've done all of that, the very last thing is that we place ourselves in the path of beauty, and especially that means God's beauty. We place ourselves in the path of beauty. And by the way, this language here comes from Kurt Thompson. I mentioned him a few weeks ago. Kurt Thompson is a wonderful Christian psychiatrist and author who specializes in neurobiology, and he has really helpful things to say about all of this. But placing yourself in the path of God's beauty means that as you're grieving your losses, as you're renouncing the lies, as you're identifying your idols, that we then turn our hearts and allow God's beauty to fill our hearts, that we allow ourselves to be captivated by the beauty of God, because God is what you were made for. God is the spirit limb that all of your pain is pointing to. And God's vision for your life is that you would find him and experience him as beautiful. But not only that, that he would beautify your life and that he would turn you into a vessel of his beauty to the world around you. Friends, that's why the Holy Spirit moves into our lives. It's to make the beauty of God more real to you but also more real in you and through you to the world around you. Because there's nothing more beautiful than the love of Jesus that we see on the cross. There's nothing more beautiful than that. Now, here's the thing. Jesus did not come into the world in order to avoid or do an end run around pain, grief, and loss. He came in order to plunge himself right into the heart of it. You know, when the world looks at the cross... Through the eyes of the world, through the lens of the world, you look at the cross of Jesus and all you see is ugliness, shame, trauma, brutality, violence, and death. But when you look at the cross through the lens of his resurrection, through the lens of new creation, all of a sudden that transforms the ugliness into the beauty of sacrificial love. All of a sudden, that transforms the shame, trauma, brutality, violence, and death into the beauty of glory, mercy, healing, renewal, and new life. 
When you look at the cross of Jesus and when you let the beauty of that fill your heart, all of a sudden that enables you to turn around to all of the other painful, grievous, hurting losses in your life and see those things in a new life, not as uh, problems to be solved, but as pointers to the glory and the beauty that you were created for in Jesus. Friends, that's what happens when you fill your, your vision and your heart with the beauty of God. And that means that when we place ourselves um, in the path of God's beauty, that means putting ourselves in a position where, where the beauty of God can come into your life and work on you, that it can go deep and start transforming you. And understand, that's what putting sin to death means. But, but it also means that this is going to be painful. This is going to hurt. When you say no to sin, sin's going to rise up and say, what did you say? There was a theologian named John Owen who lived about 400 years ago, and he very famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You never know the real struggle you have with sin until you actually start trying to fight it because it's cool with you until you start doing battle. Friends, the Christian life is not for the faint of heart. When you start actually trying to kill that stuff, where do you think it lives? In you. You start trying to kill that, man, it's going to rise up and start fighting back against you. That's going to feel like death. It's going to hurt. But one of the main things we do is we present ourselves to God and we, and we allow God to get to work on us. That means that, that fighting sin in many ways means allowing the scalpel of the master surgeon, Jesus, to go deep and do his work on us. It means going under the knife and letting him go deep. One of the most beautiful pictures I've ever seen of this is from C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Don Treader. Um, it's all about a little boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, who was so nasty and unpleasant that he almost deserved that name. And in the story, he ends up in the land of Narnia, and through his selfishness and his pride, he turns into a dragon, and he's miserable. But then one night, Aslan the lion, who's really Jesus, turns up and he, um, he leads Eustace to a pool in a garden upon a high mountain. And as soon as Eustace sees the water, he can't wait to get in the pool and ease all the aches and pains of his dragonish body. But Aslan says, before you get in the water, you'll have to undress yourself first. So Eustace, like, he gets in there and he peels off the dragon skin but as soon as he's about to step in the water, before he can get in, he realizes there's another deeper dragon skin underneath that one. And so he peels that one off, only to discover that there's another deeper dragon skin underneath that one. And he gets so frustrated, he says, how many skins do I have to take off? He's about to give up hope when Aslan says, you'll have to let me undress you. And so he does. And, and what uh, Eustace does is he lays on his back, and later he says, the very first tear he made went so deep, I thought it went right into my heart. The only thing that made me able to bear the pain was just the sheer pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Friends, Aslan takes off the dragon skins, puts Eustace in the water, and clothes him again as a real boy. Friends, here's what this means. We're like Eustace a lot of times. And we say, how many skins do I have to take off? And we ask that question because we feel like there's a certain point at which we're going to have done the work. We're going to have gotten off all of the skins. And we're going to be done. We're done killing sin. 
We're done grieving our losses. We're done renouncing the lies and identifying the idols. I'm done. I've taken off all the skins. And Aslan's work shows us that we're never done taking off the skins. We can't get those skins off by ourselves. The only thing that can get them off is the work of Jesus going deep in our life. And friends, it's going to hurt sometimes. The claw is going to have to go in deep. And the best that we can do is present ourselves to God, sometimes flat on our backs, and let Him do His work. Let Him go deep in you. Let Him transform you. Friends, you were made for God. He is the spirit limb that your pain is pointing to. And His vision for you is embodied renewal. His vision is new creation, and it begins right now. Engage the spiritual discipline of of mortification of sin by grieving your losses, renouncing the lies, identifying your idols, and placing yourself in the path of God's beauty. The more you do that, the more He will beautify you and make you a vessel of beauty to the world around you. His vision is to make you a dragon no more, but beautiful and new. Let's pray. Abba, we praise you this morning for your work of new creation in this world. And Father, for your work of new creation in our lives. Father, we confess to you that um, our default assumption is that we should uh, go about pursuing our own vision for our life in this world. And that if we can just get the conditions right, we um, we can find happiness and joy on our own. But Father, we confess that our efforts at pursuing that vision and bringing about our own happiness are doomed to failure. And Father, we pray that you will um, magnify the presence of your Holy Spirit in our lives this morning. Help us to present ourselves to you, to grieve our losses, to renounce the lies, to identify our idols, and to place ourselves in the path of your beauty, that your beauty would go deep in our lives and transform us more and more, that not only might we experience your beauty more and more, but that you would transform us into vessels of your beauty and your healing to the world around us. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.